Hey, I'm Pastor Steve Holt. I want to empower you today to walk in your true identity as a worshiper and warrior. Embrace the power of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Today, be encouraged with a word from my guest speaker. Welcome to the Born for War podcast. We're going to continue in Romans today, and I'm very excited about the study of Romans. It's an awesome book, especially as we kind of continue to go back through it. Steve opened with Romans, gave a great intro, and we kind of hung around verse 1 for that week, and then uh, we got through a few uh, verses last time. And um, I think promises were made that we wouldn't be doing that very much, but I'm here to just tell you to manage expectations. We're going to hang our hat on verse 7 today. But there's a lot there, but we will clean that bone, I promise. There will be nothing left when we're done. And um, I'm excited about it and kind of where Paul is. But I want to start with the topic today is going to be our inheritance. And in my, in my corporate life, before I came to um, the pastorate and what Steve calls affectionately a professional Christian, um, I used to work as a VP trust officer in the private bank. And my job, what I made my life's work at that time for over a decade was this transition of inheritance. I would work with families, uh, the grantors, and then we would work through the transition of wealth to the next generation. And generally speaking, that transition happened around the event of a death. And I would find myself at the table with sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, cousins, sisters, brothers, etc., you name it, and we would be going over the document. And it's been my experience And I can tell you without question, I've never had a beneficiary leave resources on the table. They come with heart, hands, and generally pockets wide open and ready to receive. And more than that, to receive all that's theirs, and I'm going to put that in quotations, um, in some cases even thinking that they deserved more based on their relationship, proximity to the grantor. And sometimes, many times, I got the benefit of delivering the bad news of what they thought was theirs wasn't going to be. And uh, that, that also didn't always translate. But it was human, the human condition in that regard. Based on their proximity, relationship, and their last name, they would sit down at the table and we'd have sometimes very life-giving conversations and sometimes not so much life-giving conversations. But there was this, this innate thing that was very intact in every person that I dealt with in my, in my professional corporate career as a trust officer and that is this, this mentality of that is mine because I was in this family line, this lineage, and I deserve that. I'm owed that. This is mine. So much to the point where uh, one of my mentors in the banking world shared with me a story one time about this guy um, who kind of lived out in the country, and he couldn't quite understand the concept. Letters had been written. He had exhausted his trust, and he was out of resources. He was completely out of resources and money. But he didn't quite, he wasn't, he wasn't catching the trail, right? He wasn't kind of reading the mail, so to speak. And so phone calls, letters, etc. there was nothing left in his trust account. But we were a bank. Ergo, in his mind, how could he be out of money? The bank's not out of money. So he shows up one day. This is a true story. He shows up one day armed. Who knows that that's a bad idea when you take a firearm into the bank, right? That's never going to work out in your benefit, even if we owe you something 
you probably want to leave your firearm in the car. So he shows up and he goes to the receptionist and we'll call him uh, Mr. Jones so that uh, no persons in the story will be harmed in the telling of it. So to keep his anonymity, Mr. Jones shows up, the receptionist calls the trust officer, says, oh, by the way, he's here um, and he's armed. So he's like, okay, call the cops. I'm going to come talk to him. So he comes up front and my mentor is like, hey, we've written you, we've called you, we've told you there's like nothing left, man. Like we're shaking the piggy bank. It's done. And he goes, he's like, I don't understand that. You guys are a bank. There's money. There's money back in that vault. I'm a client. There's no way that that's possible. And he goes, let me explain this to you. The bank has money, but yours that you had here is all gone. There's no more. I use that as an illustration to explain the human condition of very rarely do we, at the time of our conversion, come to the table with that same expectation with our inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. All too often, I think it's our human condition that we receive, and the weight and the gravity and the amount of resources, the immense kingdom resources of God the Father over us as sons and daughters is lost, and so we receive it, and we generally tend to walk around with what I call the Oliver Twist mentality. We just take a little bit, and we have this orphan spirit still attached, and so we don't fully engage. We don't fully receive, and we get thin, and we get dry, and we need a little bit more. We kind of come to the Father, and we're like, please, sir, can I have some more, right? But there's so much more that's offered, and that's where Paul's going to go today, Um, and so I want to jump in. God's going to shake each of us to the core as we learn how much potential we have in Christ, what's fully offered at that time of conversion in our hearts when we call him Lord and Savior. Rome was a great church and under severe persecution, and because the Roman church was made up of great people. So it's in this turbulent time, Claudius, the early embryonic stages of the church, is made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And Claudius is on the imperial throne, soon to depart this world, and then Nero's going to take over, who kind of takes what Claudius was doing in persecution and multiply that times 10. So you guys are familiar with the term Roman candles, right? That term has been developed from like Nero used to light his garden with Christians on poles on fire. So um, pretty dark. I don't buy those fireworks anymore, actually. Once I learned that, uh, I think that's terrible. Um, But that was the sinister aspect of his heart. What's interesting about Roman culture, and we're going to jive into this in just a minute, but Roman culture was actually very tolerant. It was polytheistic. And you could, you could worship all the gods you wanted to so long as you included imperial worship in that. And emperor worship was part of that cast of worship. Well, we know that Christianity is monotheistic, and so that became an issue for the emperor and the Roman citizens as they were. So, Um, let's dive in. Let's jump into this. Verse seven, to all who are in Rome, pause. I had to try that because I think we did that with Paul. It worked. It worked for a service. All good. So to all who are in Rome, what's happening in Rome? Rome is the capital, the most important city of the Roman empire. Some have compared it to modern day New York city or Washington, DC. Although it was founded in 753 BC, it is not mentioned in the Bible until the new Testament. In Paul's day, Rome had over a million uh, people in its population, making it one of the largest cities in the world and certainly on the Mediterranean at the time. 
It is believed, however, that of the million, one-third of, the Romans popul- of Rome's population was made up of slaves, many of which were conquered peoples, and they included teachers, doctors, businessmen, and philosophers. Paul's writings are infused with the language of slavery to Christ, a bondservant of Christ, etc., in an effort to connect to his intended audience. Some of those converted on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem probably went back to Rome and founded that early church. There were an estimated 50,000 Jews living in Rome during Paul's day, many of which were probably brought to that city during the uh, era of Pompeii as slaves, and many of which probably were at this point converted to Christianity. Now, what's interesting in Paul's writing of the book of Romans is that in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius made a decree, and he, and he basically exiled all the Jewish population from Rome's city, city limits. They had to move beyond the city limits and live outside of that for the next five years. That did not capture the Gentile Christians at the time, so the home churches that were developed in the homes that were both uh, Jewish and Gentile alike, up until that point, had been working together in their early foundations. Well, over the next five years, the Gentile church starts to find its own way. And so what we see is it's not until Claudius's death in 54 AD that the Jews come back into the city and start to integrate back into this church of Rome. And so uh, it is believed that there is some conflict there in some early foundational pieces. And so Paul is writing this letter in a spirit of unity to this early church. Paul had long desired to come to Rome, but had been prevented up until this point. And it is because Paul had never been to Rome that we have this biblical masterpiece. His letter would reach Rome in 57 AD. So about three years after this integration had happened... And the church is finding its way. There's the struggle for leadership. Who's supposed to be leading? Is it Jew or Gentile? And what is this, what is this flow? What's this rhythm? And so he would later, uh, Paul, we know Paul would later be in prison and eventually beheaded as a martyr as his final act of worship to God in Rome. Paul's primary reason for writing the Romans was to teach the great truth of the gospel of the grace to believers who had never received an apostolic teaching and bring unity to the church between both Gentile and Jewish Christian. See, there are many followers of Christ who don't know all the wonderful things that happened to them the moment they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that is like that in this world that is so immediate, where we have a complete transformation, and it's because of our humanity and how we experience this broken side of eternity that it's hard for us to have that perceivable to the depths of what actually transpires and to what we have available to us. So like a newborn baby has no knowledge whatsoever of who he or she has been born into, what their last name is or means, that little newborn baby doesn't know who his mother or father are. He or she doesn't know what their IQ will be, and they couldn't care less what the color of their hair or skin is. So it is with most of us who are born again, We don't have a clue what or who we have been born into. Paul is about to inform these young believers in this young church just what divine things have been given to them as new believers by being grafted into a new family. We've been given a wonderful spiritual inheritance in Christ Jesus. So, 
First point, picking it up in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Our inheritance as followers of Christ is that we are beloved. You may have grown up in a home where you never felt deep love. The deep love that was put into your heart in your very design and creation. It's something many of us will pursue either directly or indirectly through our whole lives. We'll try and find the answer to fill that void through relationships. Through other ways, the way we medicate things, the pain, the frustration, the disappointments of life. We're meant to experience this connection with God the Father because He made us to have this need to be beloved. Not only to feel it, but because we are beloved. And that's His desperate message to all of us today, to communicate our belovedness to Him. I will say we spend a lot of time in a greater fashion and in more detail talking about belovedness because for a lot of us men, we're taught to be stoic, capable. We're not really going to engage a large part of the humanity side of where we're going to show up and and show maybe the emotions that we have been born into. And it doesn't matter, man or woman, we have the same needs. We experience love differently, but we both have the same needs to feel the belovedness in our hearts. You may spend your entire life searching for love through relationships and different kinds of encounters. You're searching for for love, for true unconditional love, and you can have it. Jesus offers that. He demonstrates what that is. See, Jesus searched you out and loves you so much that he gave his complete all for you on the cross. And John 15, 13 through 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So right there, because of our belovedness, because of Jesus' sacrifice through the transaction, we now have a direct line through Jesus Christ to know what the Father is doing and seeing and saying to us. And no time in in our human history where we exist on this timeline of humanity have we needed it more as a Christian church, as sons and daughters, to be tapped directly into the kingdom of heaven, hearing what God is saying to us. Where do we go? Because we're not getting it where we used to think we had it. We're being deceived. We feel ripped off. Despite where you find truth today, truth is found in the word of God. Truth is found in the Father And what the Father is saying through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have complete access to that because we are beloved. God is love, pure and holy. The Bible says that's what He is. God is love. Before He is anything else, we know He is eternal. He's our creator. But He is love in its completeness. The extent of which we'll never fully understand until we probably see Him on the other side. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is what God says about his creation. 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. When I read that and I think about myself showing up at my inheritance courtroom, I'm like, kind of like, what's, what's it say in the document for me? What do I get? And the first thing the Father says is, well, 
You're beloved. You're beloved beyond comprehension to the depths of which you won't fully engage or understand yet. But you can't escape my love. You're going to try. You're going to try and maneuver around. You're going to try and find other ways to fill that love. But you're never going to get it. But I want to give it to you and continue to show you how much I love you and think about you. Because I'm never going to give up on you. No matter what you've done, I will always love you. He's numbered the hairs on our head. He knows your name and his thoughts are about you. And the thoughts outnumber the grains of the sand. In Psalms, we hear that he sings over us. Just as a mother and sometimes fathers, we sing over our baby children. When they're born, we sing over them to soothe them. If we could close our eyes and tune our hearts to him, we would hear him singing over us in his delight and his belovedness. You, your life, was worth the death of his son, Jesus Christ. In God's mind and his heart, your life was worth the death of his son. If everybody in this room was righteous, clean, and holy, and there was only one, God would have still sent his son for that individual. Because like any good creator, inventor, they don't make something that they look like they intend for it to fail or fall apart. Like all the great inventors of the world are excited to see their invention give us a better life. Like, like it, should, it should add something to our lives and they want to see it succeed and they want to see it developed and hopefully impact the world for good. Hopefully they're using their powers for wood, good and the inventing side of things. But just like God is our inventor, our creator, he didn't invent us to fail. He didn't create us to fail. He created us to flourish and experience all that he wanted for us. But because of busyness, we don't give it time. We don't give that thought a chance to take deep, deep foundational roots. And so we're quickly distracted, we're thrown off, and we divert back to the Oliver Twist mentality until we're thin and needy. And then we'd be like, oh yeah, I, I do have a resource. It's over here. I will tell you that all my clients went to the trust first. That's where they went first. And then they started looking at other resources. And it was my job to try and encourage them to look at other resources first and use that last. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. We need to repeat that. That that needs to settle in. Because the reality and the deep message of the enemy, his lie to you today, is the one who knows you best wouldn't want to have anything to do with you because of your sin resume, your brokenness, the things that have happened to you. That's what he wants you to believe. But the truth of Calvary The truth in the very statement of what happened on the cross is that the one who knows you best loves you the most. Number two, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called. Paul says we are called by God. What does it mean that God has reached out to you and called you by name? Matthew 22, 14, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Meaning that the invitation has gone out to the whole world, but few received it into their hearts. So when I take, when I take Jesus' words in Matthew twenty two fourteen and I put those as a filter over Second Chronicles sixteen nine, this is what it says: For the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout all the earth 
to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Other, other um, translations would say wholehearted. Those who are living wholeheartedly towards God, he's going to strengthen them. And so Jesus told the story of four kinds of soil that signify the four kinds of hearts of responses to the message of Christ. I'm going I'm to quickly review that, and you can pick up this story in Matthew 13. We're going to go uh, 1 through 9, but I'm going to pick it up real quick as we review the four types of soil here in verse 4. As he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them out. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is what he's saying in twenty two fourteen in Matthew. Many are called, but few are chosen. This means that the universal God, the universal God, let me say it this way. God is the universal creator, but he is only the eternal father to those who are the beloved. Those who have accepted by faith his invitation to salvation. We all have an invitation to salvation. We all can call him our eternal father. Whether we do that or not, he is still undoubtedly our universal creator. And just like the verses say, right, every one day, every knee shall bow. Every heart will confess that he is Lord. Well, we can wait and we will all do that at some point. But it would be far better for us to have all acknowledged that he is our eternal father, first and foremost. So in 23, back in um, Matthew 13... But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Sadly, many who hear the gospel will not follow, are not chosen to eternal life. The invitation is for everyone, but the calling is only for those who hear it and understand it and bear fruit. You are a disciple of Jesus. You have been called out of death into new life, out of darkness and into light. So we have four kids, and I have a five-year-old. And I like this because there's still some really sweetness, and the conversations are so honest and pure in the five-year-old. I have another one at the other end of the spectrum. Let me say the conversations are different. The five-year-old still has interest in what I think and what I know, and he values my opinions. The other one on the other end has already come to determine that whatever he thought that I thought I knew is now void and moot point and that he knows far better. And so I'm discounted significantly. Fine. So now I have other men speaking into his life and he came home the other day and said, Dad, you wouldn't believe what I heard today. Lo, tell me, son. It's like it's the first time he heard it, right? But I've been sending it to him for like, you know, 10 years. He's like, light bulb, light bulb. And I'm going... Come on, man. I'm, actually, I just say, that's fantastic, brother. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Because I, I don't care how he receives it as long as it's the truth and it's foundational for his growth and core. But the five-year-old, well, let's say I still have a lot of influence there. And so he, had, he was blowing it with his, his other sister. And she was, you know, she was working him over and kind of uh, impacting his world and, and coercing him into bad decision-making. And so he got himself into some trouble. So he comes into me, he comes into the, he comes into the, uh, the room, we're in the kitchen, 
And Mandy and I are working in the kitchen, kind of getting the next thing ready. And he goes, he's just frustrated. And she's just told on him, and probably rightfully so, because he had blown it, and he was, he was in need of some discipline. <laughs> so we sat down, and before we got into the actual, like, you know, what are your wages of sin here that you're going to get back in a minute? Um, it's probably not life. But I sat down, and I said, okay, here's a moment. Here's a moment to kind of rehearse, and even a reminder for myself. And I sat down, and I looked at him in the eyes, and he looked at me, and I go, son, repeat after me. We're going to go through this three times. My response is my responsibility. And he goes, huh, like it landed on for a minute. And he knew, I could tell, like he's like, this is a Yoda moment. And he was gonna Yoda me back probably, but he's like, okay, yeah, my response is my responsibility. And I said it again. And then by the third time, I'm like, we're having fun at this point. I'm like, my response is my responsibility. Meaning that your sister, and this is what he said, my sister made me do it, right? I mean, how many times have we all said that or heard our kids say, somebody else made them make poor decisions? And I go, listen, dude, you made poor decisions. Your response is your responsibility. You got to own that. And he goes, yeah, no, that's true. And that same week, it's funny as I'm preparing for this, we're talking about inheritance. Every one of our kids has come to us and said, you know, I want to make sure that Jesus is in my heart and sits on the throne of my heart and is ruling my life. And so we've always brought the family in and around and we make it, we, we make it a special event and we celebrate it and we all go through kind of the prayer to invite Jesus in and acknowledge his work on the cross. And so we did that with Sawyer this week, and it was precious, and we all got to share, and then the siblings went around and shared with what that means to them, where they've seen the value of Jesus in their life, where they've received and squeezed the juice of that inheritance, where they've needed God to show up in their lives as a son or a daughter. And so Sawyer went through that process, and he also got to feel the weight of his response. Just like Jesus is saying here, everybody gets the invitation. But sadly, our response isn't what God would want for all of us. And so too, like everybody in this room, we all know people, friends, family, who haven't chosen to respond to the invitation of salvation. And they don't get to participate with God as the eternal father. So, moving into the second part of this, let's go back to Romans point three. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Our inheritance as Christ, as followers of Christ, is that we are saints. If you want to see a saint, a real saint, if you are born again, follower of Jesus, you just need to look in the mirror. We can't, for many of us, that's hard to grasp. It's hard to think about that we are saints. But let's let's dig a little deeper. See, it was not our righteousness or our good works, our holiness that got us anything. It was God's righteousness, God's work, God's holiness that called you. Note here that we are not called to be saints. We are called saints. So in the New King James Version right there, you'll see to be is in italics. To be has been inserted and that is why they are printed in italics. The translators have added those words in the English to fill out the sentence. But once in a while, the added words serve to obscure the meaning, such is the case here. Just as we are called, just as we are beloved of God, we are also called saints, period. As a, your old name, if you call Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, your old name was sinner. Your new name is saint. The difference between sinner and saint 
is a savior. It is the Lord who takes a degenerate, wounded, arrogant, prideful person whom the Bible calls a sinner and then immediately calls them a saint. The Bible says that God stoops down to us and accounts our sins to have been carried by Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus' blood covers us white as snow, presents us to the Father as righteous. The righteousness is put to our account so we are justified from all of our sin, past, present, and future, by the blood of Jesus. The enemy will constantly infiltrate your mind and try and disrupt your process and tell you that you are not a new creation, you don't have a new mind, you don't have a new heart, and you're not children of God. You're still orphans, you're still dirty, and you're still broken. Man, if he can just get that to resonate, then what you're going to do is you're going to medicate. And you're going to look for other things because you can't really trust what Jesus is saying, what he has done, and what we have a full inheritance to receive. But Paul was one moment breathing threats of murder, and that very day God invaded his heart, and he became a saint. Every man, woman, and child living today who has been born again is a saint. The word saint comes from the Latin word sanctus, and it means holy one. You are sanctified in Jesus Christ. Our sainthood is not intrinsic within ourselves, but it is found in Christ who lives within us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His truth becomes our truth. We put on the holy garment of Jesus Christ. At the moment of salvation, we, be, we go from sinner to saint and we get a new operating system. Then it's our humanity that needs to catch up and we need to change our filter in how we experience life around us and how we experience the pain and the victories of this life. Romans 12, 2. How do we do that? How do we change our filter? Well, God, the scriptures say that we can be renewed in our mind with the Spirit. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our mind can be renewed by the Spirit. It's a choice when we wake up. What's our narrative? What's our filter? Are we going to continue with yesterday's narrative and yesterday's filter where we're going out there and there's really nothing good to absorb through social media, through media, through work, through the things that are broken that only are bringing disappointment, stress, anxiety, and fear? That's the operating system of the enemy that wants to take us down. I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself here, but our inheritance in Christ means that we are beloved, that we are called, that we are called saints, and that we have received grace and peace. So point four, grace to you and peace from God. Pause. I would underline, circle grace, underline, circle, however you want to do it, uh, saint, beloved, these are all inheritance topics that we get from God. The grace of God is the kindness and undeserved love of God. The mind governed by the Spirit, this is what Romans 8, 6 says. The mind governed by the Spirit is filled with life and peace. So when we allow our minds to be renewed in the Spirit, in Romans 12, 2, and then we apply Romans 8, 6, and we invite the Holy Spirit to govern our minds, taking every thought obedient, 
making it captive unto Christ. The renewing of our mind comes. The filters change in this world. And from the, the, the produce of that, if we are seeds bearing fruit, then we get life and peace. Day by day, we are the recipients of God's mercy and love. Our very breath today is because of God's grace. Jesus has dominion over this world, and when we call him our Father, then our very heartbeat, nature, animals, reproducing, God's on the throne, and this world continues to spin on a perfect axis, giving us the perfect amount of gravity. Your heart is beating not by anything that you're doing. Now you can change how long it beats by what you eat. So I've been told. My wife reminds me of that. But in that, in that, we get life and peace. And, and the opposite of that, right? The, the enemy's thesis, his life's work, his eternal work is to rob you of peace and then life. See, he knows if he can take your peace get you into anxiety, depression, fear, and start to get you to operate on that side of things, then your life starts to become in question and up for grabs. And God's saying, no, that's, that's the antithesis of what I'm going to give you if you renew your mind in me and my spirit. And, and I, I've seen this play out personally firsthand in my life. Sadly, and it pains me to say this today, but I've lost two older adult cousins that were both husbands and fathers. When I saw the enemy steal their peace, they moved away from God's operating system, and they would ultimately take their life by their own hand. Because they allowed a doorway in, and they stopped allowing God's operating system of peace, which produces life, and they went to the other side. And that was fear, depression, anxiety, and then the other conversation that starts to take place, and then the medication of trying to answer those things in their own hearts and minds, that their life was robbed from them. So day by day, we are the recipients of God's mercy and love, and our very breath today is because of God's grace. In verse 5, we read, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So just going back up a couple, uh, couple verses, Paul is telling us that after receiving grace, we have been given apostleship. Small a. All of us are called to be apostles. Pastor Steve unpacked this last week. I want to revisit it briefly here just to distinguish the office from function. Most of us will never be in the office of pastor or missionary, but we still have all been called by God to be apostles. Small a. All of us have been sent out to be a witness. Acts 8.1, just the next verse down. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be a witness to me. So in this transaction of salvation, there's something that's definitely taking place in us, in our bodies, in our soul, and in our spirit. Holy Spirit's coming in. We're getting a new paradigm. We're getting a new operating system in this. And the Holy Spirit's coming in. And with that, because of those changes, the very aspect of our discipline, the nature of our lives, how we communicate, how we parent, how we interact with relationships is a witness. Our mission field is our job, our family, and our city. The most effective witnesses for Christ are not pastors and evangelists, but men and women who build relationships 
They invite people over for dinner and share the life they have found in Christ within their circles of influence. Where do you give it away? It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to some of us because we're like, how do I give it away? What is it supposed to look like? And it can be overwhelming. We get intimidated. We're teaching our youth consistently about the work God's doing, but then how do we give it away? How do we witness? How do we build our testimony and give our testimony to others? But people just need a little encouragement. And I think we're all surprised with what that looks like when we start giving it away and we start inviting people into what we're experiencing. When we start inviting them to the table of their inheritance and we model it for them, we pray for them, we share with them where God has shown up in our testimony, where we are vulnerable with them and we take our brokenness where we've needed to experience the belovedness of Jesus, where we've seen the mighty hand of God work in our lives. And our faith is increased. And then what happens is peace comes over us. The result of flowing in God's grace will be peace. You want God's peace in your life, you have to flow in His grace. We really won't experience God's grace until we give away, we won't experience God's peace until we give away the grace we've been given. As we give it away, we get peace in our hearts and minds. Our hearts come alive. We have a mind of peace. That's what Paul means by grace and peace. And I want to say this, like real quick. So I shared it with first service. It would be ingenuine for me not to share it for you. And that is, um, at the men's advance, I talk about this transformation, this transition of myself leaving corporate and and the trust office um, and, and I loved what I did in the value that I found as far as trying to help these families. My heart was for the beneficiary. You know, the people struggling to try and put pieces together, that their legacy now is just dollar signs, decimal points, and commas. But beyond that is, what was mom and dad's legacy to you beyond that? What did they cultivate? What did they build? But I was like, I was stuck. And as we were starting to form the road I had this simple prayer on the way to work, man. I started praying this every day. It was like three sentences, but it changed my life. And it was, God, show me why I was made. What's your plan and purpose for my life? And father me today. And I wanted that so desperately. Losing my father at 21, I was searching to be fathered by guys that were ahead of me, 10, 15, 20 years. And I wanted fathered by them. I wanted mentored. And, and I would surround myself whenever possible with other men that I thought were doing it right. And I was hungry for that. And through that prayer, God continued to father me out of the corporate trust world and into the pastorate and helping Steve get the road going and other precious saints that came alongside. Giants that were able to stand on their shoulders. Um, our original elder group, just amazing men and women of God. And, and uh, so blessed that, and, and they, I probably haven't even shared with them enough um, about how much they've impacted me and my life and just their encouragement and their words as we've just ran together as brother and sister and, and built what we think God is asking us to build here at the road. Lastly, our verse says that all of this inheritance comes from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our inheritance as followers of Christ is that we have a father. You've been adopted into a new family, and many of us have never had a loving, caring father in our home. 
but you do now. You have a father that loves you so much. His thoughts about you are beyond the grains of the sand. He sings over you. Ecclesiastes 3.11. So Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, it's awesome. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I did it for the first time recently where you, I took all the Proverbs and then I consumed Ecclesiastes, which are great kind of bookends in Solomon's thought process in life. And he repeats some of what he's saying, and you're going to hear some similar language in Ecclesiastes, but really what he's doing is he's picking out pieces of what are the things that matter the most here at the end of all things? What have I learned? What, was it, what does it all mean? My life, I was born, and I'm going to die, and it will be meaningless. Some of it's actually pretty negative. But he does get halfway in, he starts to transition, and his mind shifts, and you start to hear his heart come out. But early on in Ecclesiastes in 3.11, this is what he says. Like, because we're made in the image of God, and because of that, God has planted eternity in the human heart. Our desire... The creators, the inventor of humanity, the inventor of you and me, the creator of us, humanity, designed us with eternity built in our hearts. Designed us to need to feel this deep belovedness. We talk about the God hole and that's the only thing, right? I mean, you've heard that. If you've been around church, you've heard that expression. But this idea that we long for something eternal We're designed to desire that. We pursue it. We try and find answers in the landscape of our culture, whether we're binge-watching the latest eight-part movie series, right, or the newest tech that's coming out. We, We try and medicate this desire without turning to the one who put it there to fully receive peace and life and experience eternity, pieces of his kingdom that we have offered to us right now in this life. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I talked earlier about one day being on our knees, but wouldn't it be so much better in this lifetime, why we're here now, to extend our arms up And we just cry out, Abba, Father, because it's available to us. I'm going to talk to the guys here for just a minute because for us, that feels uncomfortable. We're going to be vulnerable. And and why would we need Daddy? Why would we need Father today? But so many of us have a gaping wound in our hearts because we so desperately needed Father in our life to say, you can come through, you're capable, you have what it takes, and when it matters most, you can do it. If we just pause for a minute, I know that resonates on your hearts. Because you want to know that when it matters most, you can come through for your family, for your wife, for your kids. God's saying, I'm here. I'm your father. I can be everything to you. But our testimony is limited to our our reluctance to release our brokenness to him. To the degree that we're willing to release that, is the degree that we're going to experience his healing, his power, his restoration, his belovedness over us, that we can trust that. We can taste that and we can see that it is good. Galatians 4, 6. This is, as Paul builds through this, it's going to be Galatians 6 and 7, back to back. The enemy, by the way, wants to tell you that you need to operate in a spirit of fear. That's why God has to come back and say, 
in his writings here in 815, that you don't have that spirit anymore. You don't have that. You don't have to operate there. It's a choice to go back there, but you don't need to operate in that space. You can cry out, Abba, Father, and I will rescue you today completely from your set of circumstances if you'll give me everything. Be humble. Give me your pride. Give me your hurt. Give me your pain, and I will completely rescue you because you are sons and daughters, Galatians 4, 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. God has answered that cry, and he is your eternal father. And in 4, 7, We are no longer orphans. We are no longer slaves, but we are adopted into his kingdom with all the full rights of inheritance. We don't have to walk around like Oliver Twist anymore, just taking part of it in the morning, right? So many times, sometimes, being honest, I'll just grab the keys, the wallet, and I cut short my mentor time, my time with the Father, and I'll leave the door and I'll head to my day, meetings, agendas, etc. And I left half of today's daily bread on the table. I didn't fully receive today what God had for me. And halfway through that day, I start to realize that I'm not nourished, I don't have the strength, and I don't have everything I need for the day as his son called to his purpose, called to do his work. And so there, I got to go back to the table. I got to go back to the well and experience the delight, the belovedness, remind myself, remind myself that I don't care what you guys think about me. The only thing that matters to me is what God thinks about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I can be my own worst enemy. But I shut all that down and I go back to the Father and I say, God, show me. Talk to me. How do you see me? And I get all that daily bread. The one who knows you best loves you the most. Thank you for listening to the Born for War podcast. We hope today's message has empowered you to make a difference in your world. To connect with Pastor Steve's sermons, books, and blog, visit steveholtonline.org. God bless.